Good morning. Good morning, Leroy and Dawn. Good morning, Vera. Good morning, Lawson family. Just getting myself a little bit set up here. Thank you for joining. Good morning, Comos. Magda specifically. If you're all doing well in the Lord today, excited about today's lesson. I hope you'll enjoy it. It will be edifying to you. We'll get started in just a few minutes. Kevin and Cherie. Morning, Mullers, Dwayne and Judy. Thank you for being here. You know, it really is great just continuing to think about how we can so we can very easily meditate on all the things that we don't have right now during quarantine and coronavirus. But then when we can meditate a lot on what we do have, and one of the things we do have is the ability to meet like this and to study more about God's word and about the things related to the scripture together. So I, f I find that to be a great blessing. I'm so glad that you can join me in it. Very good morning to you. All right, it's about 9.30 on the East Coast, so we're going to get started. Well, good morning officially and welcome to Sunday School from Calvary Community Church. Thank you again for being here. 
and I enjoy always your participation in the live chat on our YouTube page. You can see the URL on your screen. Please take advantage of that. Well, today represents a little bit of a pause in our chronological study of the Bible. We're going to do a special lesson today at the end of Unit 7 in the Answers Bible Curriculum. I'd like to introduce to you today a topic that's been a lot on my mind lately because I'm taking a class on it. Here at the seminary, at the Master's Seminary, I've been taking a class on the historical geography of Israel, or I guess another way to say it, biblical geography. Now, I told you at the end of our last class, when we kind of finished the book of Joshua, started the book of Judges, it's appropriate that we would explore this topic right now. Israel has just entered into the land. They have, they're all getting to know it in a sense, if, if we think about them in the present tense. They've conquered the land under Joshua. They're living in the land. They're getting to know it. And so we should get to know it too. And that's what we're going to try to do together today. Of course, we could do an entire Sunday school series on the geography of ancient Israel. Uh, and we don't have the time or ability to do that right now. But we can at least do an introduction and an overview of Israel's ancient geography. Who were Israel's neighbors? What were the different topographical and climate regions of Israel? How much rain does Israel actually get? And how does knowing something about Israel's geographical situation, both on a macro scale and on a smaller scale, how does that inform the teaching of the scripture that we want to know? Well, we're going to investigate many questions like these today. Just a side note. There was a question last time about workbooks for the next unit in the Answers Bible Curriculum. If you would like a workbook for Unit 8, as we proceed further in the scripture, you can obtain those. And maybe you saw the email from Duane, but you can obtain those by stopping by Calvary Community Church, going to the mailbox and back office, and you can pick up one of your workbook copies there. So. If you have more questions about that, of course, you can email me or email Dwayne, but you can pick up workbooks from the, from the office, from the mailbox in the Calvary office at the back of the church. But anyways, we're looking at geography today. Introduction to biblical geography. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on this time of learning. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who keeps promises. And many of those promises that we see, especially in the Old Testament, they relate to the land. Lord, help us to understand that land a little bit better so we can understand the scriptures as a whole better. And we can also understand your faithfulness and those promises that you will still bring to pass, even related to the land, because you are a God of covenant faithfulness. And we're so glad that you've shown favor to us, undeserved favor to us, yes, even us today, who are the wild olive branch God, and you grafted us in to those covenant blessings. Lord, I pray that you give me the ability now, and, and this would be an edifying time and an encouraging time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, to set the stage for our topic today, I'd like you to take your Bibles and open to the book of Joshua chapter 10. I want us to revisit a text. Well, I guess I have the verse on your screen, but it's always good to look at it in its context of the Bible. Joshua chapter 10, verses 40 to 41. This is actually a verse that we looked at together. We did read it before, but I want you... So take a moment now and reread these two verses with me. Joshua 10 verses 40 to 41 says, Thus Joshua struck all the land, the hill country and the Negev and the low land and the slopes and all their kings. He left no survivor, 
but he utterly destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, that is, Yahweh, the God of Israel, had commanded. Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea, even as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. Now, why am I bringing up these two verses? Well, I want you to notice some things. Look at these two verses again and see if you can count the number of geographical terms that are mentioned. Just starting in the beginning of the verse, we see all the land, the hill country, the Negev, the lowland, the slopes, Israel, Kadesh Barnea, Gaza, the country of Goshen, and Gibeon. That's a lot of geography in just two verses. But ask yourself, do you actually know where these places are? Probably not, right? I mean, sometimes we have a vague idea of biblical locations and regions, and even if we don't, most of the time we can still get the main point of the passage, we can still understand the main point of the passage without knowing all the geographical details. But still, let's face it, there's a good amount of spirit-inspired text, there's a good amount of scripture that we do not understand or appreciate simply because we don't know much about the geography of Israel. But if we did know a little bit more about the land, we can understand why the biblical authors report what they do. We can understand why certain events happen in the Bible. For instance, why a certain kingdom attacks a certain area. Or we can even understand why certain acts of God or people or places in the scriptures are theologically significant. So understanding biblical geography can be very, very helpful in understanding and appreciating the scriptures. That's why I want to learn a little bit of that with you. That's why I want to study that a little bit with you this morning. Now for the purpose of this lesson, which is an introduction and an overview, I want to cover four main areas when it comes to Israel's ancient geography. I want to talk about Israel's placement in the world at large. I want to talk about Israel's dominant topographical layout. There's a pattern to how the land is in Israel. I want to talk about Israel's hydrology and vegetation. And I also want to talk about Israel's main topographical regions. There's not just a pattern to the land, but then we can look at the little individual sections and see what's characteristic of it and what's significant about that portion. I'm going to start with Israel's place in the world. Here's, a, here's an image of the world, a map. And if you notice that little, little red circle in the middle of it, that's where Israel is. Israel's right in the middle of the Middle East. Now, if you just look at the Middle East for a section on this map, there, what do you notice that the Middle East does for Africa, Europe, and Asia? Well, it more or less connects them all. The Middle East acts as a land bridge. It's a crossroads. And in ancient times, if you wanted to travel by land from Africa to Asia, or Europe to Africa, or Asia to Europe, you often had to go through the Middle East. Even if you were traveling by sea, many times you had to connect through the Middle East. So the Middle East really was a crossroads, and Israel was part of that. Now also, if we continue to look at this map, and consider where Israel is in, in relation to the rest of the world, and where the Middle East is, there's something else that we can notice about the Middle East compared to Africa, Europe, and Asia. And that is, the Middle East is more or less in the center of all these continents. Now, it's not in the exact center, but it's, it's kind of in the center. It really is middle. Uh, we have the term Middle East, but it really is in the middle. 
And actually, the Bible says something similar. In the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 5, oh, that's right, I have some little notes here that I can click for you. There we go. Ezekiel 5, verses 5 to 9, we hear something very interesting from God. He's speaking about Jerusalem and by extension Israel, and this is what he says to them. This is part of God's condemnation on the people for their covenant treachery. And he says, Ezekiel 5, verses 5 to 9, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, This is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of the nations, with lands around her. But she has rebelled against my, or my ordinances more wickedly than the nations, and against my statutes more than the lands which surround her. For they have rejected my ordinances, have not walked in my statutes. Therefore thus says the Lord Yahweh, Because you have more turmoil than the nations which surround you, and have not walked in my statutes, nor observed my ordinances, nor observed the ordinances of the nations which surround you, Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I, even I, am against you, and I will execute judgments among you in the sight of the nations. Now, do you notice what God is saying to Israel here in Ezekiel? God says that he's placed Israel in the center of the nations, and not just metaphorically, not just because he's given a particular blessing or particular attention, but even physically. He says that Israel is in the sight of all the nations. Now think with me. Why would God do that? Why would God put Israel and even Jerusalem in the middle or the crossroads of the world? Now before we answer that in full, we, we should ask a little, maybe smaller questions. Why would being in the center or the crossroads of the world, so to speak, be a potential disadvantage? Might not be a good thing. Well think about it. If you're in the middle, you've got nations all around you, that means you're surrounded by potential threats enemies on every side and actually isn't that Israel's situation today yeah they're in the land they're in the land of canaan in a sense they've been they, they've come back to it but they've got enemies on every side another disadvantage is if somebody wants to fight the enemy on the opposite side of you particularly ancient world well they have to go through your land because it's the crossroads if they want to get to the other side for conquest or some kind of battle, they have to go through Israel, which is what we see in the Bible. Egypt passes through Israel to fight Assyria. Assyria passes through Israel to fight Egypt. Babylon, Persia, Greece, they all conquer through Israel to get to the territories beyond. And even in the last days, when we consider what the Bible has to say about the last events before the second coming of Christ, Israel will again be a battleground for the nations. So, there's threats on every side. There's those who would have to fight through Israel to get to the enemies they need to attack. And then there's the fact that being in the center means you're not only a crossroads for battle, but a crossroads of ideas, religious ideas, ideological ideas that may be contrary to what God actually expresses in the scripture. Again, let's think about Israel's experience. Where did Israel learn its idolatry from in the scriptures? It was from the surrounding nations and from the people who were still in the land, but they were influenced by the surrounding nations. Or where did Solomon get his wives that turned his heart away from God? Again, it was the surrounding nations. So being in the center of the world can actually be a disadvantage. But on the other hand, why would being in the center or the crossroads of the world actually be an advantage, a benefit, even a great blessing? 
Well, again, we can point to a, a number of things. There's first of all trade. If you're in the crossroads, if everybody wants to get through you or to the lands on the other side because of their merchandising, you can make a huge profit. You're basically the middleman. You, you're the you're the one um, collecting all the the taxes and custom dues and uh, various things related to trade. So you're going to be enriched as a nation. Also being in the center makes your kingdom or your country a perfect place to rule and administrate the other nations. And even as uh, Magda just commented in the chat, also being in the center it means that you have an opportunity, really the perfect opportunity to influence the surrounding nations in a positive way. You can be a light, a beacon to the nations to influence them to follow after Yahweh and to even intercede for them before Yahweh. And consider these benefits, they correspond with what God says about Israel in the Bible. For example, Exodus 19.6 says that Israel would be to God a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, what was he saying? Well, he wasn't saying that every single person in Israel was a priest, a priest like the Levitical priesthood and can go into the tabernacle or the temple. But he was saying that as a nation, they would function as priests for all the nations of the earth in a certain sense. Or Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28, verses 12 to 13, God is talking about the blessings that will come upon Israel if they will follow after him. And some of the things he says, I won't read those verses to you, but he says, you're going to be the head and not the tail of the nations. You're going to lend to them and you're not going to borrow from them. You're going to be economically prosperous. Or consider what Isaiah says. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 3, we hear about Israel, even in the last days, fulfilling a purpose as the center of the nations. Isaiah 2, verses 2 to 3 says, now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the chief of the mountains. And it will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. So coming back to our question, why did God ordain the land inheritance for the seed of Abraham to be in the middle of the nations, even at the crossroads? On the one hand, apparently, it was to test Israel. There are disadvantages to being in the center. Would Israel hold to God in the face of many threats? Would Israel resist the influx of pagan ideas and uh, religious systems and hold fast to their covenant God? So it was testing, but on the other hand, it was blessing, and it was meant to make Israel a blessing to the world. And we even see a glimpse of this purpose kind of being fulfilled in the days of Solomon. I mean, think about Solomon's kingdom, Israel's prosperous, at peace, drawing all people in the world to visit Israel, learn from Israel's king, learn about Israel's God. And God says that one day, that same situation will return to Israel, except in a much greater way. When Messiah returns, when our Lord Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom in Israel, he restores a repentant Israel, the nations will again, or the, yes, the nations will again stream to Israel in order to know more about Israel's God, even our God. Now, speaking of Israel's place among the nations, let's talk about Israel's ancient borders. 
Israel's borders actually fluctuated a lot in the scriptures. So if I put up a map here, it's not going to be accurate for all of Israel's history. But in terms of the territory assigned to Israel by God, it actually goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. If we look at Genesis 15, verse 18, this is part of God's covenant, official covenant ceremony with Abraham. He says this about the land. Genesis 15:18. God says to Abraham, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Now note some things about that text. First of all, this land promise is given under the unconditional Abrahamic covenant. It's not given under the conditional covenant of Moses, or at least not at first. Notice also that what's promised in terms of land is quite extensive. From the border of Egypt to the border of Mesopotamia. That's a lot of land. Also, this description and similar ones to it, it appears throughout the Old Testament. So it's not like something God said and he didn't really mean. No, we see this description about going from Egypt to the Euphrates a number of times in the scriptures, all related to the inheritance of God to Abraham's seed. But what's interesting about this promise as given in Genesis 15:18 is that there's a more specific description given regarding Israel's Canaan inheritance in Numbers 34. Numbers 34 verses 1 to 12. Now we don't have time to read through that passage together in Numbers, but I will summarize the border information for you. According to Numbers 34, in verses 3 to 5, Israel's southern border was to be the wilderness of Zin beyond Kadesh Barnea. Now, if you look at the map on the screen, this is this is someone's uh, best attempt to put onto the map the borders given in this passage. So here's Kadesh Barnea. Here's the wilderness of Zin at the southern part of Israel. So here's Israel's southern border uh, on the eastern side, not taking any of the territory of Edom, but on the western side, being bracketed by the brook of Egypt. Now you see the brook of Egypt here is not where maybe you might expect. The brook of Egypt is probably not a reference to the Nile River in Egypt, but actually to a different river here pictured on the screen, the Wadi El Arish. This is a seasonal river on the northeast edge of the Sinai Peninsula. So this is Israel's southern border, according to the passage. Its western border, we hear in verse 6 of Numbers 34, is the Mediterranean Sea. Israel is to possess all of the coastline. Israel's northern border is probably the most difficult to understand from the passage. There's a number of place names and landmarks given, but a lot of them are hard to identify today. It seems, though, what the passage is describing in terms of a northern border is actually a demarcation, a natural demarcation that was recognized in the ancient world. Basically, it, it, the, the northern border would be at the top of the Lebanon and anti-Lebanon mountain ranges. So here's the Lebanon mountain range, anti-Lebanon mountain ranges, because what's on the other side of this is a, uh, is a depression in the land. It's the Tri Tripoli-Holmes-Palmyra Depression. That's the modern name for it basically a big valley right on the edge of these mountain chains. Uh, what's also a little interesting about this is that this, this uh, natural demarcation is still used today as a border between Lebanon and Syria. Not the whole, not the whole uh, section, but the beginning of it, it's still being used today as a border because it is a natural demarcation. One of the place names mentioned in the text in Numbers 34, Zadad, we have pretty good verification that it would be around here. It would be here. And so it seems that this is where God was saying Israel's northern border would be. And it 
as you can see it extends beyond modern Lebanon and even into modern Syria now as for Israel's eastern border uh, verses 10 to 12 of Numbers 34 state that Israel's eastern border is to be the Sea of Galilee and the uh, Jordan River so coming down here the Dead Sea called the Salt Sea in the scriptures and the also referred to as the Sea of the Arabah the Arabah is the land that comes from underneath the Dead Sea at the bottom now note in this border description given in Numbers 34 it does not take into account the land that was already conquered under Moses apparently God did not consider this part of Canaan itself but it was part of Israel's ordained land now as we consider these border descriptions and the, this map that attempts to depict it there are probably a couple of things that you notice and one is Canaan in the mind of God as expressed in the scripture is a little bigger than we commonly think of it today we often think of biblical Canaan mostly as just the land occupied by modern Israel but God apparently conceived of the territories extending from the edge of the Sinai Peninsula up to the top of Lebanon and even into modern Syria a second thing you might notice is that there, there appears to be a little bit of difference in terms of the promise given to Abraham and the promise given to Israel through Moses why is there this discrepancy well I've seen at least two ways that this might be explained uh, one way is that the border promise to Abraham is really not different from the border promise given to Israel under Moses in Numbers 34 it's just a matter of interpretation the argument basically goes that the river of Egypt mentioned in Genesis 15 18 is the same as the brook of Egypt mentioned here and as for the reference to Euphrates here in Numbers or in, in Genesis 15 18 we don't see the Euphrates mentioned in Numbers 34 but apparently there are some smaller western branches of the Euphrates that do penetrate into the middle of Syria so perhaps one way to explain these two different descriptions of Israel's borders is that the reference to Euphrates is to these uh, these smaller branches of the of, of the Euphrates that extend into Syria so really the borders are the same another another way to explain it is to say that the promise given in Genesis 15 18 about the land is in general not to be taken too literally while the borders given in numbers 34 they're the more concrete concrete promised borders those those should be taken very literally this would be kind of like using our term the British Isles today we refer to the British Isles we know what the British Isles means now generally the two great islands off the northwest coast of Europe they comprise Britain or the United Kingdom and so it's appropriate to call them the British Isles but technically British Isles is a little bit of a misnomer because not all of the idols belong to Britain and the Republic of Ireland controls the majority of one of those islands but we still use the term that is if you wanted to really be nitpicky it's technically incorrect so maybe something is happening here a little bit with the when talking about the river of Egypt and the Euphrates it's kind of in general where Israel's borders are going to be but technically they're a little bit uh, they're, they're a little bit withdrawn from those from those edges but either way there's a these these two descriptions about the borders they don't really contradict each other they actually complement each other now there's a third thing that we might notice based on these border descriptions and that is Israel never really possessed all this assigned territory yes they did inherit the land under Abraham and they were even restored to the land after the exile but Israel never possessed all this territory that's true under Solomon Israel's hegemony extended farther than ever before and even afterwards 
And even the language describing Solomon's dominion in the Bible is reminiscent of the border descriptions we've just looked at. For example, 1 Kings 4.21, 1 Kings 4.21 says, Now Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river, that'd be the Euphrates, to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Did Solomon fulfill these assigned territories given to Abraham and to Israel? Well, the problem is, as originally promised, God said that Israel would possess these lands, not merely control them. Solomon did not do that. He subdued many of the kingdoms around him, but he didn't actually possess all of that land. And this means that the promise given to Abraham regarding Israel's full, full borders has never really been fulfilled. And even Solomon didn't control the, the Phoenician states to the north of Israel. So either any, any way you slice it, Solomon is not the fulfillment of these border promises. However, the scriptures indicate that these borders will actually be fulfilled one day when God restores the kingdom of Israel under Messiah when Israel repents. And why do I say that? Well, partially a huge part of it has to do with what's written in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapters 40 to 47, we hear about a future resettlement of the land of Israel, which includes a new division for the 12 tribes. Under Joshua, the tribes were given a certain, certain land allotments. In Ezekiel 47 to 48, we hear about a new tribal division. But in terms of the borders of the kingdom of Israel in this future day, Ezekiel 47 47 verses 15 to 20 gives borders that are basically the same as the borders given in Numbers 34 verses 1 to 12. Even though the internal borders of the tribes are not the same, the external borders are basically the same. Now this, again, this has never happened. Israel's restoration from exile under King Cyrus was not the fulfillment of Ezekiel. Nor was the Hasmonean dynasty in the intertestamental period. If you're not familiar with the Hasmoneans, also known as the Maccabees, that was kind of a, a brief time in the 100s BC and afterwards where an independent kingdom of Israel was restored to the land and they conquered some of the area around them from the, from the Greeks who ruled at that time. But even that independent kingdom, it never fulfilled the borders as given in Ezekiel and in Numbers and in Genesis. So what does this all mean? It means that what was originally promised to Abraham unconditionally will find its fulfillment one day. But only after Israel repents, the Messiah comes. That's when Jesus Christ will establish his kingdom in Jerusalem, in Israel, and it will have dominion over the entire earth. And of course, as Jesus promised, his saints will rule with him in that day. Even us who believe in him. So we've dealt with Israel's location in the world. And we've dealt with Israel's borders. But as the final piece of understanding Israel's macro-geographical context, let's talk about Israel's neighbors. The names of the nations surrounding Israel, they come up again and again in the Bible. So it's useful to get to know who is living near Israel. We're going to overview Israel's neighbors by marching counterclockwise, starting from the west. Directly to the west of Israel, and this, uh, this map is using the divided kingdom period, so we've got the kingdom of Israel in the north and kingdom of Judah in the south. But to the west of Israel, against the coast, were the Philistines. According to Genesis 10, the Philistines were descendants of Ham, but were not Canaanites. Philistines were apparently living in the land before Joshua's conquest. Some Philistines, the majority of them, though, appear to have arrived later. 
They appear to be the sea peoples mentioned in ancient Egyptian records, probably migrating from Crete and the Aegean around 1175 BC. They settle here on this coastal plain uh, toward the latter part of the Judges period. And the Philistines, they primarily exercised control over five cities over here and uh, kind of close to the Gaza Strip today, uh, essentially the Gaza Strip today. But the Philistines at times controlled other portions of Canaan. So we've got the Philistines on the west. Further west, not pictured on the map, we have another of Israel's neighbors, Egypt, one-time oppressor, sometimes unreliable ally in the Old Testament. We know about Egypt. Directly to the south of the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, if we, uh, okay, Edom does extend a little bit more uh, directly south over time, but directly to the south wasn't really a neighbor of significance. Uh, further south in the in the in the Middle East, you do have the Midianites who were up against the coast and they sometimes harass Israel, but directly south was mostly desert, and so don't really have a neighbor living there who's going to pose a problem for Israel. To the southeast, though, uh, maybe more over here and extending further to the west over time, we have the kingdom of Eden. Edom was another, tame for the, another name for the descendants of Esau. They, they lived on this high plateau, primarily on this high plateau southeast of the, the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea. Sometimes they served Israel and sometimes they were enemies of Israel. As we continue moving counterclockwise, just above Edom, on the eastern side of Israel, we have the kingdoms of Moab and Ammon. Remember, Moab and Ammon, they are the descendants of Lot via his two daughters. They sometimes are subjugated by or oppose Israel. And according to the Torah, Israel was forbidden from taking any of the territory from Ammon, Moab, or Edom. God said, I've given them their territory. You don't take it. Now, beyond Ammon to the east is, again, mostly desert. Now, this map here mentions some Aramean tribes. Yes, there were some nomads who lived in the desert, but we're not talking about a substantial settlement. So there was no real great threat in the east beyond Ammon and Moab until you get to the other side of the desert where you find Babylon and Persia. But when they invade Israel, they don't come directly west. They don't want to go through the desert. That's a good way to get your army killed. You would come, you would go to the northwest and then come down to Israel from the north. So we've got Philistia. We've got uh, Egypt over here. We've got Edom. We've got Moab. We've got Ammon. And to the northeast, we have the kingdom of Aram, also called Syria, depending on your translation of the Bible. They're, they're just two names for the same people. The Arameans were descendants of Shem. They also warred with Israel at times. You might remember a certain famous Aramean or Syrian, Naaman, who was healed by his leprosy from Elisha. He was from Aram. He was a Syrian. Now, further to the northeast, beyond Syria, was the kingdom or the empire of Assyria, called Asher in Genesis 10, also descendants of Shem. Assyria would rise as the first great Middle Eastern empire in the 700s BC. Historians called that the Neo-Assyrian Empire. And of course, they would invade Israel. They would essentially conquer the northern kingdom of Israel, take it into exile, and greatly threaten the southern kingdom under Hezekiah. So we've almost made all our way around here. We've got the kingdom of Aram to the northeast of Syria beyond it. But then directly to the north, we have Phoenicia, also known as Tyre and Sidon in the Bible, two 
great port cities and those who lived around them. Phoenicians did not usually war with Israel, but they did trade a lot with Israel, especially in timber, timber from Lebanon. Now these Phoenicians, inhabitants of Tyre and Sidon, they were true Canaanites. They are considered to be Canaanite along with the other people in, in what we think of as Canaan proper. Phoenicians, they worshiped Baal, practiced human sacrifice, and you might remember later in Israel's history, the northern kingdom, a king from the northern kingdom, King Omri, makes a peace treaty with Israel and Phoenicia. And part of that treaty is that Omri's son, Ahab, marries a princess of Phoenicia. And who is that princess? Well, that's the infamous Jezebel. And she and Ahab are responsible for bringing Baal worship and making it the state-sponsored religion in Samaria in the northern kingdom for a time. So these are Israel's main neighbors throughout the scriptures. Of course, when we reach the New Testament times, the picture is quite different because Rome has established its dominion. We won't go through the details of the geography then. Basically, under Rome, Rome divides the Mediterranean world, including Canaan and Syria, into different client kingdoms and governorships. These are assigned by Rome to do what Rome wants and keep the peace. All right, now that's enough about Israel's place in the world and its neighbors. Now let's talk about the land of Israel itself. And actually, this is this is a great intersection to what Greg or to what Craig posts in the chat. The land of Israel. Uh, let me come back to this map. The land of Israel, the portion of Canaan generally occupied by the Hebrews throughout the Old and New Testaments, is actually not very big. Uh, for comparison's sake, the modern state of Israel, again, what we think of as Israel throughout the Bible, the modern state of Israel is roughly the size of New Jersey. Hey, New Jersey. Nevertheless, this small land is very topographically diverse. Lots of different terrain in this small area. We've got deserts, we've got hills, mountains, barren wilderness, coastline, lush valleys, plains, lakes, small rivers, and swamps, all in this little area. And despite this great diversity, there's a general pattern when it comes to the terrain in Israel. And I'm gonna show it to you based on this map. Basically, as one moves, and here's north here on the map, basically as one moves from west to east in Israel, you're gonna encounter four main longitudinal zones. When I say longitudinal, I'm talking north-south. You're gonna encounter four main topographical zones as you move from west to east. And you can see this illustrated on this 3D map. First, and by the way, you can, if you put your mind to it, you can remember these four zones, and that'll help you in understanding Israel's geography as the Bible describes it. The first zone all the way in the west is flat coastal plain. The second zone right next to it is high, high hill country. So you're going up in elevation. The third zone on the other side of the hill country is the rift valley, the very low elevation rift valley. And then the fourth longitudinal zone right on the other side of that valley is the Transjordan Plateau. Again, going, very, or going substantially higher in elevation than the valley or even the coastal plain. Now again, to illustrate this, and to emphasize this terrestrial reality, let's imagine you're a traveler in the ancient world trying to move from west to east in Israel. You'd start, let's say you're walking by foot, or you're traveling by foot, you'd start on the coastal plain, and it's a relatively easy walk, you know, easy to travel, nice little jaunt, you're moving, moving west to east, but then you encounter this second zone, and it's suddenly a rigorous hike upward into the hill country. Ooh, you're gonna get tired pretty fast. But then as you go through the hill country, you kind of reach the top of it, 
rest yourself a little bit just walking along but then you descend downwards into that third longitudinal zone the rift valley and you're going down a long way because this rift valley goes uh, many hundreds of feet below sea level so it's a steep hike downwards into the rift valley but then if you want to get to the other side well you've got to hike back up again and a very rigorous hike basically a climb out of the rift valley onto the transjordan plateau as i say this is the general pattern this is the general state of the terrain in israel whether you're deep in the south or up in the north you're basically encountering this reality these four longitudinal zones you've got the coastal plain hill country rift valley and then transjordan plateau this topography by the way partly explains the water situation in israel let me briefly say something about that israel's hydrology you see israel does not have any big rivers like some of its famous mesopotamian neighbors it doesn't have the nile like egypt or the euphrates like mesopotamia and babylon tigris or the euphrates and not having one of these big rivers well that's kind of inconvenient these rivers are constant they can be counted on for uh, water and irrigation Israel does have the Jordan River but as I mentioned to you before in the lesson about Israel's crossing the Jordan River Jordan River is not a big river and it's at the bottom of this deep rift valley which means it's pretty inaccessible for farming and irrigation most of the other rivers in Israel these little wadis these little rivers they're seasonal they don't last all year uh, they're there in the winter disappear in the summer it can't be relied on for steady amounts of water so if you're living in israel how are you going to get the water that you need well you've got oh, we'll talk about that verse in just a second you've got wells you've got springs but primarily you've got rain and dew your water is primarily going to come from the rain in the patriarchal narratives by the way you might notice how many times people like abraham isaac and jacob they're needing to dig, find, or control wells. It's again because the water situation is in a certain state in, in the land of Canaan. Also, many of the major cities in Israel, actually pretty much all the cities in, in Canaan and Israel, they are built next to springs, places like Jericho or Jerusalem or Hatzor or Megiddo. That's because water is a big deal in this area. You need access to water. But if you have a well or if you build your city next to a spring, these need to be replenished eventually by rainfall. Israel fundamentally is a land that needs consistent rain to do well. And actually, this is what God told Israel before they entered the land. Here's where I'm bringing in this text, Deuteronomy 11. Deuteronomy 11 verses 10 to 11 says this, God speaking to Israel. For the land into which you are entering to possess it, is not like the land of Egypt from which you came, where you used to sow your seed and water it with your foot like a vegetable garden. That appears to be some reference to irrigation based on the Nile. But the land into which you're about to cross to possess it, a land of hills and valleys, drinks water from the rain of heaven, a land for which Yahweh your God cares. The eyes of Yahweh your God are always on it from the beginning even to the end of the year. Excuse me. Now, again, think of me a little bit. Why would God have Israel inherit a land that was so dependent on getting just the right amount of rainfall for its prosperity? Is this an accident? Is this just a coincidence? Certainly not. We can see that this is 
purposefully given by God so that the people might follow him and depend on him, obey him so that they can receive the rain they need and be blessed. <laughs> the fact that rain is not guaranteed should have caused the people to continually turn to Yahweh. But what did Israel actually do because of this concern over getting rain, having a fertile land? Well, they followed the customs of the people who lived around them, who also were obsessed with rain. And so they served Baal, the storm god, the rain god. They thought if we serve Baal, then we'll get the fertility, we'll get the rain that we need, and we'll have prosperous lives. But of course, what's the irony in Israel's doing to that? In Israel's doing that? When they clung to false gods like Baal because they were so desperate for rain, that's when God, according to his faithful covenant um, covenant attitude and behavior, he actually withholds the rain from Israel. They became desperate for rain, and he said, well, now you're not following me, so i got to withhold the rain. And we see this most explicitly with Elijah and the northern kingdom. Remember, the northern kingdom turns to follow Baal, state-sponsored Baal worship under Ahab. And what does Elijah say to Ahab? For the next three years, there's not going to be any rain here. You turn to the rain god, well, now there's not going to be any rain. In fact, at the end of those three years, when Elijah has the contest with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, 1 Kings 18, he shows, first of all, Baal can't produce rain. Second of all, Baal can't even produce lightning. He's supposed to be a storm god. And third of all, as soon as you get rid of the prophets of Baal, what does God do? brings back the rain. It brings back a downpour. That's because God is the one in control of the rain. That rain that Israel desperately needs, not Baal. Now today, as in ancient times, Israel does receive a fair amount of rain, but only in certain times of the year. You can see that illustrated uh, over on this section of, the, of this map here and also in this little chart. Uh, kind of like Southern California, Israel basically has only two seasons. It has the wet season and it has the dry season. Most of the rain falls in the winter months in Israel. You can see this here, October, November, December, January, February, March, April. Uh, some rains can begin in September, uh, and others can still appear in April, but primarily we're talking about the winter months. That's when we get all that rain. Israel is rainiest in the north. You can see on this kind of uh, different shades here on this map. This is where the greatest amount of rainfall falls in the north near Mount Hermon. Also, you get a decent amount of rainfall on the western sides of the, the hills in Israel, the western side of the hill country, western side of the Transjordan Plateau. Don't get much rain in the south. Don't get much rain on the eastern side. And I'm going to illustrate this a little bit more. Up in the north, the area around Mount Hermon gets about 55 inches of precipitation a year. That's a lot. And the the runoff of that precipitation, is the, the rain from Hermon, the snow from Hermon, it's part of what feeds the Jordan River. So a lot of rain up there. Jerusalem gets about 24 inches of rain a year, which actually is about the same amount of rain that London gets, about 24 inches a year. However, London's rain is spread out throughout the year. Jerusalem's rain kind of comes all at once, kind of like a flood or a torrent in those winter months. But Jericho on the eastern side of the hill country, on the edge of the Rift Valley, it's about four inches of rain a year. So you can have a pretty big difference in rainfall depending on where you are in Israel. Now, in terms of agriculture, because of this rain, and because of the hilliness in Israel, Israel's not that great for growing 
large amounts of grains. And there are parts of Israel that were really good at it. The plains, the valleys, they could be really good for growing crops like wheat and barley and things like that. But where the land of Israel really excelled was in its pasturage and its cultivation of trees and vines. For example, grapes, olives, pomegranates, figs, apricots, almonds, pistachios, walnuts, mangoes, they all flourish in Israel. Olive oil and wine, two commodities that were especially valued in the ancient world, they were two items that Israel was particularly good at producing. Meanwhile, the grasses in Israel that flourish on the less rainy hills, they are perfect for cultivating livestock, made uh, raising animals profitable, of course, that led not only to meat, but also to many milk products. Actually, it was the milk products that were, that were usually the result of raising animals. So it's just as God said in the Torah, Canaan was indeed a good land, especially well suited for Israel. But it would only be prosperous if it got the rain it needed. And it would only get the rain it needed if Israel continued to look to God who literally was sustaining their lives by bringing the rain. Now, in our modern culture, we sometimes don't think about how God actually directly sustains our lives too. He's the one responsible for the weather that gives the food and the transportation networks that bring the food to us and the money that we obtain so that we can buy the food. God is sustaining our lives just as much as God is sustaining the lives of Israel. It's just as the Psalms say, all the earth looks to God for provision, even for food. And we do today too. And God says that he will provide for us perfectly at the right time and in the right way, even for our food and for our health. So I've given you a lot of the, the macro context of Israel. We've looked at Israel's place in the world. We've looked also at Israel's water situation. With the last bit of our lesson today, I want to talk about the main regions of Israel that follow those longitudinal topographical uh, zones. Now we're going to do this by again moving west to east but as we go through each one of those zones we're then going to move north to south you'll see as we as we go along what i mean i'm going to put various maps i'm also going to put a bunch of pictures up here so you can actually see what the land looks like today and what it would have looked like to some degree in ancient times okay starting again from the west our first main region of israel is basically that longitudinal zone that i mentioned to you the first main region is the coastal plains. Coastal plains, these are uh, the plain of Asher in the north, going down to the plain of Dor, the Sharon plain, and then the plain of Philistia. These coastal plains are flat. Uh, parts of it are pretty swampy. You would think that being by the coast, having flat land would be good for farming, but the number of Swamps here in ancient times has been a good way to get malaria, so a lot of people actually didn't live directly in this area. And worse, the coastline of Israel, especially in ancient times, was not very good for uh, creating a port. Not very good for shipping because there's not really a natural harbors. You have better ports up here in the land of Tyre and Sidon. So most of the major cities on the coastal plain in ancient times, biblical times, they were actually a little bit inland where the farming was a little bit better. There's some good farming soil here on the coast. And also you have the International Coastal Highway. That's this yellow line here on the map. It goes basically right past the coastal plain. If you want to get in on that trade and on the custom dues, well, you built a city near it, like Gath or Gezer or Aphek. Now, during the 
during the early parts of Israel's experience in the land, up until the time of David and Solomon, most of the coastal plain, especially the southern section, was controlled by the Philistines and the Canaanites. Israel couldn't drive out the people in this area. And why not? Well, it's because of that war machine that Israel particularly feared, the chariot. Chariots excel on flat ground. And so Israel was fearful and not able to take out the people who lived in these areas, at least not for a while. Now, I told you that Israel didn't really have any good ports on the western coast. Uh, Joppa, Jaffa, Joppa uh, was kind of their best attempt at one, but it was still kind of a second-rate port. In New Testament times, we have the port of Caesarea. This is built by Herod the Great. He's the, he's the Herod of the infancy narratives related to Jesus. He actually takes a bit of his own creativity and, and some Roman technology, and he creates a man-made harbor in Caesarea to create a world-class city and a world-class port. Because he said, hey, this is the land where I'm living. I want shipping to come here. And he was successful in that. Of course, Paul was in prison in Caesarea for a time before he made his way to Rome. Right, that's the coastal plain. Here's some pictures of the coastal plain. You can see the coastline here, very flat, and you can see some of the good farmland. Now, the swamps have been drained in modern times, so you have a lot more farmland happening near the coast today, more productive. Now we go back into that second longitudinal zone. We've got the coastal plain all the way in the west, and then we've got the hill country. And now we're going to be marching our way down this hill country from the north, and the first region we have is Galilee. Upper Galilee, Lower Galilee. Of course, we're familiar with that term Galilee from the Bible, also referred to the region of Chinnereth uh, in the Old Testament. What's Galilee like in ancient times? Well, we've got moist, rugged hills, a good amount of rainfall, as I said, in this, this uh, northern section. Uh, fertile area also around the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee itself was a great boon to the inhabitants of the area. Sea this freshwater sea, basically a lake, but Israelites called large lakes seas. This freshwater lake had abundant fish, also prone to sudden storms, however, due to the unique low elevation of the Sea of Galilee. After Israel's exile from the land, uh, after Samaria is conquered and the people exiled, Galilee is, partly, is part of the area settled by pagans who don't believe in God, don't know the true God. In intertestamental times, under the Hasmoneans, remember those are the Maccabees I mentioned earlier, they reconquer the land of Galilee and they force the people, formerly pagan, to become Jews, forced conversion of Jews. But of course, anytime you force people to believe, believe in a religion, they're always going to be suspicious of whether they truly follow that religion. So the rest of Israel always kind of had a, a suspicion and a contempt for the people of Galilee. And that's what we see in New Testament times. Yet, yet it's in this area that God and his providence and in his grace, this was the area in which Jesus primarily ministered. And if you look closely at this map, I know the writing is a little small, probably from where you're viewing it, you can see some of the cities that we see mentioned so often in the New Testament narratives. We've got um, Nazareth here in Lower Galilee, a little bit away from the Sea of Galilee, very small town, maybe 400 people, kind of backwoods, but that's where Jesus grew up. You've got Capernaum here, closer to the Sea of Galilee, Chorazin, Bethsaida. These were the sites where Jesus did most of his miracles. And of course, Jesus also condemned these cities for not believing in him in spite of the many miracles that he did. Of course, Jesus' ministry in Galilee was basically foretold 
Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 2, it says, Galilee of the Gentiles. Yes, Galilee that was settled by the pagan peoples, even forced to convert. That's going to be the place where a light, a special light dawns. So this is the northern region of the hill country, Galilee. Some pictures of Galilee. You can see some of the lushness here and some of the hilliness. Uh, here's, uh, I think, uh, northern Galilee, and here's part of the Sea of Galilee. Moving further south, right beneath Galilee, we have the Jezreel Valley. Now, I told you generally, as you move from west to east in Israel, you're going to have to move from low, flat elevation up on these big hills and then back down to the Rift Valley. But the Jezreel Valley is an exception. Here's the Jezreel Valley here on the map. It kind of pierces like an arrow. You can even see the arrow shape here, kind of the shaft of the arrow there. It pierces like an arrow into the hill country and is actually flat land, a nice broad valley. Jezreel Valley was well watered, fertile. It uh, also features the International Coastal Highway passing through. Crops grew very well in the Jezreel Valley as they do today. And if you wanted to pass from the northeast of Canaan down to the southwest or southwest to northeast, you were going to pass through the Jezreel Valley. It was a great transport hub in Israel. So a wonderful section of land in many, many ways. But if this land is so great, well, what do you think ancient people probably did with the Jezreel Valley all the time? Well, they fought over it. The Jezreel Valley, as a valuable, travelable, strategic section of Israel, it is the site of many ancient battles as well as notable biblical events. Naboth's vineyard was stolen from him in the Jezreel Valley. Elijah contested with the prophets of Baal on the edge of the Jezreel Valley on the Mount Carmel Range. Good King Josiah, he lost, lost his life fighting Pharaoh Necho in the Jezreel Valley. And even in the future, before the coming of Christ, in those last days before the coming of Christ, we're again going to see battle in the Jezreel Valley. If you've ever heard the term Armageddon, well, that's just another way of referring to the plains of Megiddo. Where's Megiddo? Megiddo is a fortress city on the edge of the Jezreel Valley, basically guarding this pass that goes through the Carmel Mountain Range from the Jezreel Valley to the coastal plain. In other words, the plains of Megiddo, Armageddon, is the Jezreel Valley. So you can understand uh, why there would be battle there in the future, because there's been battle there in the past. So Jezreel Valley, Jezreel Valley is pretty important in the scripture. But let's keep moving. Oh, yeah, some pictures of the Jezreel Valley. You can see it's a very, very fertile. And turning to move south, we have the hill country of Samaria. Samaria, also a term for the northern kingdom. This represents the tribal inheritance of Ephraim and Manasseh, sons of Joseph. Very hilly, lots of hills and valleys. Not quite as rugged as the hill country further south, but this is where we see the cities of Samaria, especially the capital cities, Shechem, uh, I'm sorry, Shechem, Terza, and Samaria kind of all near each other. They're used as capital cities by the kings in the north. Uh, did I want to say something else about Samaria? Oh, yes, Samaria is, of course, that city of Samaria, uh, within the land of Samaria, so the city of Samaria over here. That's where Omri and Ahab set up their official state-sponsored Baal worship. It's kind of a capital devoted to Baal worship. And you can see some of the hill country Samaria here in these pictures. 
As we continue to move further south, though, we encounter the hill country of Judah. A little bit more rugged terrain than in the hill country of Samaria actually made the land more defensible, kind of less accessible. You wouldn't be traveling through Judah as much as you would through Samaria, but that kind of protected Judah from invasion and also from some of the ideas and religions that affected the northern kingdom over in Samaria. Of course, it's in the hill country of Judah that we encounter some of those famous cities like Jerusalem uh, and Bethlehem. So here's Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and Hebron. They actually were all on the same uh, ridge route. So as I said, that you kind of get hillier here until you reach a kind of peak, a watershed ridge where the water flows this way and then it starts flowing this way. Right on that ridge was a, a route also called the Way of the Patriarchs where Again and again in Genesis, you see the patriarchs traveling up and down. And Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and Hebron, they're all on that ridge, all the way up until Shiloh, which is kind of more in the, in the hill country of Samaria. But again, this is a pretty hilly place. There are kind of two sub-regions of the hill country of Judah that I also want to mention to you. Over on the western side of the hill country of Judah, you have what's called the Shephelah, or that's a Hebrew term that means the lowlands or the low hills. It's kind of a transition zone between the flat coastal plain and the, the, the higher hills of the hill country of Judah. You kind of have these low hills in between. On the eastern side, you have the wilderness of Judah. And this is very barren. Not much rainfall here. The very, very steep, also referred to as the slopes in the Bible. This is where David, this is part of the area that David lived in when he fled from Saul. Also, it seems to be the area that Jesus went to when he went to be tempted in the wilderness. He went right from the Jordan River, where he was baptized, over to the Judean wilderness. I'll show you some pictures of those. Here's some hill country of Judah. And here's a Shephelah. You can see these kind of lower hills and the, the larger hills in the distance of the hill country of Judah. And the wilderness of Judah. Hmm. That's not a place where people can really live that well. Of course, that goes up to the Dead Sea. As we finish going south in the hill country, we encounter the Negev. And you see this term in the Bible. The Negev actually comes from Hebrew words meaning dry and south. And that's pretty accurate. And the Negev is a semi-arid area in the very south of Israel that transitions into desert and wilderness outside Israel's borders. Uh, here in the Negev, we encounter some of Israel's extreme southern cities like Beersheba and a little bit further south, Kadesh Barnea. And sometimes you hear the phrase from Dan to Beersheba in the Bible. Dan would be all the way in the north up in Galilee and Beersheba all the way in the south in the Negev. So that's a way of referring to all of Israel. I traveled from Dan to Beersheba to find a particular thing. That means you went through all of Israel. And then here's some pictures of the Negev. Yeah, that's a, that's a little bit more difficult place to live, much more barren. So we've gone through the coastal plain. We've gone through the hill country. Now we can pick up the pace now a little bit and talk about the Rift Valley, the next longitudinal zone. It's in the Rift Valley that we find the, oh, this is again very low elevation, but this is where we find the fertile Hula Valley up in the far north, then the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and then the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea. And beneath the Dead Sea would be the area known as the Arabah, a very dry, kind of deserty area. I'm not going to say too much about the Rift Valley since I've kind of covered it when I talked about the Jordan River in previous lessons. 
But uh, things to know is that the Rift Valley is pretty fertile in the north, especially above the Sea of Galilee and around the Sea of Galilee and the upper Jordan. As you get pretty, as you get further south where the Dead Sea gets pretty barren. Uh, the Dead Sea itself is about 1,400 feet below sea level. It's the lowest place on Earth uh, above the ocean. And it's part of the, the lowness that makes this a somewhat unique, a unique area in Israel. Somewhere around the Dead Sea is where Sodom and Gomorrah were. Some different sites proposed for that. And the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah probably did have some effect, some permanent effect on the environment of the Dead Sea. It's interesting, when Lot separates from Abraham, he looks at the Jordan Valley and he's like, wow, it's so well watered. But he ends up around Sodom and Gomorrah and those areas today are not well watered. So it seems like something was altered there over time. And here we can see some pictures of the Rift Valley. Here's Upper Jordan. And here's some area around the Dead Sea. And you can see the, the high plateau of the Transjordan just beyond. This is looking east over the Dead Sea. Finally, our last longitudinal zone is the Transjordan Plateau. This name, Transjordan, it comes from Latin. Transjordan means beyond the Jordan. That is beyond the Jordan River from the perspective of Canaan. And in the north of Transjordan, we have Bashan, known as the Golan Heights today. And below Bashan, we have the land of Gilead, and also a little plateau area below that. Now, this is excellent pasture land. You remember the tribes of Ruben, Manasseh, and um, Gad, they, they stop before Israel even goes into the promised land. They say, hey, let us live here because this is a great place for animals. And that's true. It's great, great grazing land on the high plateaus there. It gets a decent amount of rain. Also, Gilead was famous for its balm. And sometimes you refer, there's a reference to the balm of Gilead in the Bible. Oh, I should mention about Bashan in terms of livestock. Sometimes you see the description, bulls of Bashan, strong bulls of Bashan. I think even in the Psalms, the psalmist sometimes says, bulls of Bashan have surrounded me, talking about fierce, strong enemies. This is a reference to the great pasture land and the animals of the Transjordan area. Now, it's interesting, not much is actually mentioned about Transjordan in the Bible. Sometimes we hear about people attacking Transjordan, but we don't really hear much about life in Transjordan. And it appears to be a little bit out of the out of sight, out of mind um, attitude going on here. Beyond the Jordan, well, it's kind of difficult to get to. That's not where things are really happening. Most of what we hear about happening in the Bible happens on the western side of the Jordan. But people would want to possess the eastern side of the Jordan because that's where you found another international route, international trade route, the King's Highway. That's this yellow line right here, goes through Transjordan. If you controlled the King's Highway and if you controlled the International Coastal Highway, the way of the sea, well, then you had access to the main trade routes and you were collecting all the customs, all the tolls, which is what uh, Solomon was doing when he had all of Israel under his control. That's part of why Israel was prospering so well under Solomon. All right, that was a, oh yeah, some pictures of the Transjordan area, uh, a water here, waterfall here in Bashan, Golan, and then um, you can see some of the some of the hills in that area. Now that's a really quick tour, I understand, but I, I hope that from this you can recognize and even remember these main regions and these main longitudinal zones that I've just described. As you move west to east in Israel, again, to review, you start with coastal plains, then you run into hill country, then you go down into the Rift Valley, and then you go up into the Transjordan Plateau. Of course, there were different valleys, different routes that made your, your movement between these areas a little bit better. It's not like there was a ton of routes. There was particular ways to go, but 
there there are ways that made it easier on yourself when we talk about the hill country we can note certain regions as we move from north to south we have galilee all the way in the north the jezreel valley below that the hill country of samaria below that then the hill country of judah on the western side of the of judah we have the the low lowland the low hills the shephela on the eastern side of judah we have wilderness and then below judah we have the negev so now just doing that brief survey and introduction if we were to return to this passage we actually would be able to recognize the various terms most of the terms and cities given in this passage and of course we've only done an introduction to biblical geography there's a lot more that we could learn and that's something that i encourage you to pursue and to take advantage of on your own uh, certainly there's if you have a bible particularly a study bible there are probably maps within it or at the end of it you can take advantage of those or you can consider purchasing a bible atlas as part of my class on the historical geography of israel i've purchased three bible atlases these are atlases that were required for the class and that were very very helpful very interesting that's the new moody atlas of the bible the discovery house discovery house bible atlas and the satellite bible atlas i've actually been featuring a number of the maps in the satellite bible atlas in today's presentation in terms of the photos credit for those goes to uh, professors at the master's university and the master's seminary todd bolin at the university and michael grisanti at the master's seminary but again you can use these atlases they kind of take you through the narratives of scripture and they show you maps and charts in relation to those things to help you understand the land better now, i can't endorse every theological perspective given in these uh, atlases there's nothing too crazy nothing nothing um, outright heretical that's going to make you unorthodox by reading through these atlases but uh, i will say that outside of these atlases i don't necessarily endorse everything that these authors say actually the author of the satellite bible atlas it's a great atlas nothing in it is objectionable in terms of theological content but the the author actually has become somebody over time who denies the deity of christ so i don't want you to be swayed by that don't listen to the author when he talks about christ's deity but uh, when he talks about the land of israel just an excellent reference resource and really helpful maps so these are great reference works that should continue to make the Bible's geography clearer to you. Now, of course, if you have any questions about what I've shared with you today, you are free to, or please feel free to post it in the chat. I'd love to interact with you a little bit about it afterwards when I pray. Or you can send me an email at dafkaposha at gmail.com and I'll try and answer your question and interact with you as best as I am able. I'm not an expert on the geography of Israel, but I've certainly learned a lot more, and I'm, I'm really glad to do so, and I want to continue to learn about the geography. But that's all for this week, officially. Next week, um, unless we're doing something special um, for related to Easter, we'll start Unit 8 of the Answers Bible Curriculum, which means we're jumping back to the book of Judges, and we're going to learn about a particular judge, Gideon. And we're going to see that Gideon was a fearful man, whom Yahweh, our God, transformed into a courageous judge who delivered Israel. Anyways, let me close our time with prayer, and then, as I said, love to interact with you afterwards. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, all your words are true. You promised Israel that Canaan was a good land, and you were giving it to them. And your word proves true. It was a good land. It is a good land. And yet, God, it is a land that in a sense, they don't have the right to until they turn back to you, until they repent. Lord, we look forward to the day when you will bring about repentance nationally for the people of Israel. 
We pray that even now, God, you would turn many of those who do not yet recognize their Messiah back to you. Also pray, Lord, for those who are not Jewish, Lord, that they would see the great works that you did for Israel, your covenant faithfulness, even in relation to the land, and that they would be convicted of their rebellion against you, wanting to follow their own way instead of your way. And Lord, they would repent and trust in the only Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for this time together. I pray that you bless the people at Calvary and everyone who listened today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all again for joining me on this special lesson about Israel's geography. Again, feel free to ask some questions or comments, share some comments afterwards. I'll hang around for a little bit. Otherwise, you can send me an email or I'll see you next time. You're most welcome. Uh, those of you sharing your thanks so much. Yeah, it would be wonderful. Uh, just going to your comment, Vera, it would be wonderful to visit Israel. I may have shared it with you guys already. I had been planning to visit Israel as part of the study trip with TMS. Due to the coronavirus and quarantine situation, that trip has been canceled, unfortunately, but to be expected. Um, it might be, though, that I can go with uh, TMS on a study trip next year. It seems like they will let us keep the scholarship that, that they awarded to us to go. Not sure if that will happen, but that would certainly be a great, a great blessing to actually walk through and see many of the things that we talked about today in the land of Israel. I know some of you have been looking forward to going to Israel with Calvary. And of course, that would be a great time not only to see the land, but to share that experience together. That's right. Yeah, Mark, the, the word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. Uh, I think that's maybe mentioned in both uh, Proverbs and the Psalms. You're most welcome. Um, it's a joy to put this together. Yeah, Israel will be grafted back in. Uh, Romans 11 makes that quite quite clear into the covenant provinces, uh, promises of Abraham. Well, I'm glad to hear that, Craig, uh, bringing the country of Israel to life a little bit. Of course, nothing like being in the land of Israel, but we can get a little taste of it by looking at maps and looking at pictures and hearing hearing about the land. Amen to that, Don. God is faithful. And due to his great grace and faithfulness, we are to worship him, follow him, and be obedient to him. And we can trust him because he proves himself faithful again and again in the scriptures. And even in our own lives, he proves himself faithful. Even now, in the midst of this uh, this trial and this crisis. Yeah, uh, interesting comment, Brian. A lot of references to trees and vines in the Old Testament. And... Um, not that they're the only things that did well in Israel, but they were the main things. And certainly the people of Israel, they would have appreciated those analogies because that's what they lived with all the time. Any other comments or questions before I sign off? Well, thank you again for being with me today. I hope this was enjoyable for you and uh, edifying to you. I uh, look forward to being again with you next week while we continue on in our study of the scripture and in our fellowship together. Be blessed in the Lord, and I, I pray that you would have an edifying time as you uh, hear the preaching at Calvary and you continue your worship today. See you again soon.